0: This is the Core Life Training Podcast with Jeff Olson. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Core Life Training Podcast. This is the preseason episode number seven. This episode's guest MC is my buddy, Mike Boddington. Mike is a great dude that I've been to a lot of rock shows with here in the Portland area. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that I like to get to shows early. I want to get the best spot, whether that's the front row of the balcony or maybe up uh, front at the stage, maybe off to the side where nobody's going to bug you. Uh, I like to go early and get the best spot. Mike's exactly the opposite. Mike, Mike likes to show up like two hours into the show after the opening bands have done their thing, gets there just before the headliner and then pushes his way to the great spot that we've saved for him. Uh, always have a great time hanging out with mike Uh, let me give you a little sample of mike's music in the band empty tomb and then i'm going to leave a link to all of his music in both crux and empty tomb for itunes in the comments below so check out a little bit of empty tomb right here Dig it, man. That is Things Are Going to Get Hairy by Empty Tomb. And like I said, I will leave a link to their music, Empty Tomb and Crux, in the description below. All right, let's get on with this episode of the Core Life Training Podcast. If you remember in our last episode, we covered the story of the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. And we noticed that they're structured around three major poems, right? Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 33. And those poems point the whole book, uh, the whole Pentateuch, to the last days, and they tell us that in the last days God would raise up a king from the tribe of Judah who would rule over all the nations. So in this episode, we're going to move from the Pentateuch to the section of the Hebrew Bible called the former prophets, and that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now the story so far of the Old Testament is that we're looking for this king, and in the book of Judges, there are no kings, and that's a major problem in Israel. And in the book of Samuel, we meet our first king. We meet King Saul, and what we want to do in this episode is see how these books contribute to the story of the Old Testament, and then ultimately how they shape our expectations for the king who would come in the last days. So I hope you dig it. Go ahead and grab your Bible, grab a notebook, and grab your drink of choice, and let's go ahead and get down to business. All right, let's take a look at the story of the prophets and we tend to think of the prophets as guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, the 12 minor prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, the prophets is actually a section of Scripture that includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those are called the former prophets. And then you can see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and the 12 are called the latter prophets, right? Right. Um, Former means the ones that go before. Latter means the ones that come after. But before after, after what? Uh, each other. So okay. the former ones come first in the book, and the latter ones come second in the book. Right? Are you talking about time or you talking about chronology? Nope, just talking about order of the book. Okay. Right? So you can see Joshua, Jer- Judges, Samuel, Kings come before Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and 12. So that's why they're called former. The other ones are called ladder because they come after. There's nothing tricky about it. It's the very simple, the simple meaning, the plain meaning of it, not a tricky meaning. So you might you might say, well, what in the heck are the we would call the first books the historical books, right? We would think of those as history books. You might think, what the heck are the historical books doing in the prophets section? Uh, We tend to think of them kind of in strictly historical terms, but in the logic of the Hebrew Bible, they're not mere history or I should say they're not just history right they are history but they're history with a prophetic message they're a history with a message that looks forward just like the Pentateuch it's historical but it's a story that looks forward so these books all look forward as well and what they do is they carry the story of this coming king forward for us So we're going to skip, in this class, or in this session, we're going to skip Joshua, because Joshua comes at one of the seams between the sections of the Hebrew Bible. So you can see between the law and the prophets, Joshua is on one of the seams. And so we're going to skip Joshua today, and we're going to come back to it later, because it plays a really important role in the story of the whole structure of the Old Testament. So we'll come back to Joshua later. And tonight I want to start just with the book of Judges. So if you turn over to the book of Judges, we can start there. And you'll notice throughout our time together, I spend a lot of time, and we'll spend a lot of time on the structure of books. So we're looking at how these books are put together, what sections come before and after different sections, and why they're put together that way. So let me show you just quickly the the structure of the book of Judges. So Judges looks like this, if you could kind of lay it out. Uh, There's a a prologue. It's kind of the beginning of the story in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. There's a central narrative section from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to 16, verse 31. And then there's a conclusion to the book from chapter 17, 1, all the way to 21, 25. So that's the way the book lays out. And this is just standard, standard judges' study. Like, this isn't anything unique. Everybody sort of sees this in terms of how the book fits together. Now, what you'll notice if you read through the book is that there's a theme in the central narrative section. Uh, well, first, there's kind of a cycle that happens in the story. So Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God sends uh, a nation to come in and oppress them, or have a war with them, or put them into slavery, or something like that. And then Israel cries out to God, oh God, this sucks, it's horrible, please help. And God raises up a judge, which is essentially a military leader. So God raises up someone who will lead Israel's army to like conquer their enemies, and Typically that's how it works. They conquer Israel's enemies and there's peace in the land and almost immediately Israel does evil in the the eyes of the Lord again. And so God sends in another nation and then they get upset and after some years cry out and then God sends another judge. And it happens over and over and it's sort of the spiral of evil and judgment and crying out and deliverance and evil and judgment and crying out and deliverance. It's this spiral throughout that whole central section. And Thematically, in the central narrative section, uh, there's a a recurring phrase that happens, and I've already mentioned it. It says that uh, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That happens over and over again. I think it's seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, seven times in those chapters, the author says, and Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we talked about repetition last week. If If an author's repeating something over and over, it's probably kind of important to them. So the author's trying to make a point here that Israel's doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the conclusion has a theme as well. So there's a, a repeated phrase in the conclusion, which is, in those days, Israel had no king. Or in those days, there was no king in Israel. In other words, as the author repeats, in those days, there was no king in Israel, he's making the point that, man, if there was a king in Israel, things might be different. Why are things so bad? Because there's no king in Israel. right? People are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and there's no king in Israel. So those those two things sort of thematize, uh, thematize the, the story. Now, it's interesting. We're looking for a king, right? From the Pentateuch, we're looking for a king. And there isn't one in Judges. In fact, the author makes a real important point that Israel's doing evil and there's no king. Uh, so you might not expect to find the king in the story of Judges. Uh, if you think of the book of Judges, what are some can you think of some stories from the book of Judges? What are some uh, Bible stories from Judges? Can we think of any? Samson, Samson and Delilah, there's one. Deborah. Can we go three deep? Jephthah. Deborah. Jephthah. What did Jephthah do? You remember? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of stories. I think uh, think of stories like these. I think of uh, the left-handed judge, Ehud. And he meets this big fat king of Moab, Eglon, and he sticks his sword in his belly, and the sword sinks sinks all the way in. Like gross, right? Like that's not very kingly and spiritual, and it's gross, right? Uh, Jephthah gives his daughter as a burnt offering because he makes a foolish vow. Uh, in Judges 19, there's a concubine that gets cut into 12 pieces and sent to the tribes of Israel. Yeah, well, you've got to read the story. Uh, in other words, everyone's, everyone's, doing, everyone's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, the story is this place is a mess. Israel has come out of Egypt They've carried their idols and loved their idols all the way. Joshua's led them into the land and nothing's gotten better. It's a total disaster. Consistently, Israel's doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and there's no king in Israel. So the author is trying to tell us, man, if there was a king in Israel, things might be better, right? We kind of need a king to show up. Uh, The question is we need not just any old king, we need kind of a, a specially qualified king, and it would be a king that compares to the leaders that we see in the book of Judges. There are two, two problems, at least, two major problems with all of the leaders in Israel. Uh, oh, I'm skipping some really great pictures here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And I need to uh, figure out how to rotate this picture. One of the major flaws of Israel's leaders is they all die. It's, it's sort of hard to fault them for that, but it is a theme in the book. So, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. What is that? Twelve, thirteen times, it says, "And he died, and 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 he died." One of the major problems is a leader rises up to deliver Israel from their enemies and then dies, and they're gone, and Israel goes off into idolatry and immorality again, and the next leader comes to help deliver them, and then he dies too. So what Israel needs, at least according to the author, in the way the author is telling the story, what Israel could use is a permanent king. In other words, a king that doesn't die like these guys. Or to put it another way, a king that lives forever. Right? Because all the guys, all the leaders that die don't solve Israel's problems. So that's one of the major flaws is that all of Israel's leaders die. Israel needs a king that lives forever. Has the king we're for been talked about in the eternal No. Okay, not, not yet. yet. We haven't got a picture of that yet. Not yet. So in the Pentateuch we have king from the tribe of Judah, rules over all the nations, prophet, priest, king like Moses. Okay. So when you when you get to judges, the, one of the qualifications of this king uh, one of the key contributions here is the idea that this king has to be a permanent king it's got to be an eternal king one that lives forever one that doesn't die like all of israel's well, leaders it back. is and then it'll be more explicit later. yeah we'll we'll see yep we'll see more of it in isaiah for sure but you would never expect that in judges an eternal king in the book of judges but that's one of the primary arguments of the book we need an eternal uh, or an eternal king or a king that doesn't die So that's one of the major problems is is that all of Israel's leaders keep dying. And another of the major problems is that none of them can lead Israel into righteousness. So they can conquer their enemies militarily, right? They can lead an army and go thrash people and use swords real well. But the minute they're done with their military job, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord again, right? And the, the argument of the author is Israel needs a leader, a king, who could actually lead Israel into righteousness because none of these fools could, right? These guys can't can't get that done. So Israel needs a king who will live forever and a king who can lead God's people into righteousness. So those would be the two primary themes of the book of Judges, right? Any, any questions about just those two themes? Okay, so if that's clear, then we'll take a peek into the New Testament and we'll see if the New Testament author's are seeing this clearly. Uh, so if you'd go to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 16, we'll see that Paul is preaching in the synagogue and he rehearses Israel's history from the exodus from Egypt all the way through their desire for a king. Now that comes all the way into Samuel. And Paul's just kind of preaching through that story. But the king God gave Israel, specifically David, had a flaw, Paul says. David died and underwent decay. This is Acts 13, 36. So this is towards the end of that whole sermon. Paul says, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. What does that mean? He took a nap? No. That's a a euphemism for he died. Well, David was just like the judges. He had the same flaw as the judges. He died. David couldn't be the king that God was promising in the scriptures. He fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. Now, what Paul says next is clearly referring to this whole idea of a king that lives forever out of the book of Judges. So in other words, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that Paul probably just read Judges like that morning for devotions before he got up to, to lay the sermon down. Uh, so this is verses 37 to 39. But he, that is Jesus, whom God raised up, did not undergo decay. That means he didn't die. Now, why is that important? Because we found out in Judges all of Israel's leaders died. We need a king that doesn't die. Paul says Jesus didn't undergo decay. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. says he saw decay. Mine says he saw corruption. And, I don't know, I just, it has to me, it just has a completely different Yeah, and it it's uh the corruption of the body, yeah, like, in death. Like, now that you put that in perspective and see that, but if I were to read that by myself, it's like, it's all corruption. Like, first Like. first thing I think is he went up to heaven and looked down on earth. It's smart, right? <laughs> right, his right. Are, you know, like, yeah, no, no, no. It means he died... David died and his body was corrupted, right? It decayed. Bodily corruption, corruption, exactly. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, didn't, right? He died, but didn't undergo decay. So Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is justified, that is, declared righteous, in the eyes of the Lord from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. What two things, what what two qualifications does Jesus have in Paul's sermon that come out of judges? Number one, he doesn't die. He doesn't undergo decay. He was raised from the dead. And number two, he can bring righteousness to God's people. But how does he do it? He does it through forgiveness. Right? He does it through forgiveness. He doesn't do it by making you a righteous person. He does it by justification. That is trading our faith for his own righteousness. He credits us, righteousness. So Jesus has the two qualifications, not dying and bringing righteousness to God's people, that come right out of the book of Judges. So I I would say it's clear Paul has just at least recently, uh, recently been thinking through the book of Judges as he's preaching this sermon. So in other words, what I'm saying is Paul, what I'm saying here now is Paul didn't uh, take his ideas about Jesus and go back to the Old Testament and find some places that maybe backed up his idea or supported his thought, it's, it's clear he's read the qualifications of the king from the book of Judges and simply looks at Jesus and says, well, he didn't die and undergo decay, and he's actually able to bring righteousness to God's people. So he's going from the story of the Old Testament and then applying it to Jesus, not the, not the other way around, not reading his theology back into the Old Testament. All right. Next, we'll look at the Book of Samuel. And Samuel, in the Hebrew Bible, is considered one book. First and Second Samuel considered one book, and it's one long story. I mean, there's no reason why it should be broken up uh, because it's one continuing narrative or one continu- continuing story. So, I'll show you the structure of First and Second Samuel, how they go together, uh, because you know, structure is kind of what we're doing here. Uh, you can see that the white line there is just the narrative line of the story, all the way through first and second Samuel. And you can see at the beginning of first Samuel, two, one to 10 is a poem. So that yellow box is a poem. And over here this is Second Samuel 22, verse 1 to 23, 7. That's a poem at the end of Second Samuel. So the whole story of Samuel is sort of bookended with poems. Now, remember what poems are for in the story? They're going to tell me the important part of the story, right? So this whole book is framed by poems that are meant to tell me what's most important in the story. And if you read in the story, uh, let's look at second Samuel, or sorry, First Samuel chapter two. 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, this is the, it's a poem, and it's one that uh, Hannah, it's a poem of Hannah's psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, she was barren and wanted to have children, and her husband uh, wanted to have children, they couldn't have children, and so she prayed and prayed and prayed, and ultimately the Lord answered her prayer and gave her Samuel, uh, who would become obviously a prophet for the Lord, and this is her psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord answering that prayer, and essentially, I'll just kind of summarize the poem. Essentially, she praises the Lord for uh, exalting the lowly, lifting up the downhearted, right? Um, encouraging the humble and humbling the proud and taking the mighty and bringing them down. So Hannah's psalm is this psalm of reversal. The mighty have been brought low and the humble God is exalted. And that's her story. She's one of the humble that God has blessed and exalted. But you'll notice at the end of the story, there's kind of an important, important little uh, phrase uh, that we should be looking for and paying attention to from the Pentateuch and from Joshua and Judges. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now look at this last little phrase here. And he will give strength to his king. Now are there any kings in Israel? Not so far in the story. What, he'll give strength to his king? So what is Hannah's poem doing for us? It's looking forward in the story. right? Hannah's poem expects a king that God will strengthen. He'll give strength to his king and he'll exalt the horn of his, uh, of his anointed. And that's a, a key word. It's uh, the Hebrew word Mashiach and we get the English word Messiah from it. It literally just means anointed one. Uh, but in these... These key passages, it really only occurs a few times and is looking forward here to this coming king who is the anointed one. Uh, So Hannah's poem looks forward to a king, God's anointed king, that God will strengthen. So as we flip the pages, we should be saying, who is God's anointed king? Who is from the tribe of Judah? Who will rule over all the nations and be a prophet, priest, king like Moses and live forever and bring righteousness to God's people? Who is that king? Right, right, we're flipping pages through Samuel saying, who is that king? And if you look at 2 Samuel, uh, what is that, 20, 22? So this is basically the end of the story of Samuel. It says, David spoke these words of the song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And David sings a song. If you look down at chapter 22, verse 51, and this is really all about how God has delivered David and protected David and guarded David. And I ran around and lived in caves and people wanted to kill me with a spear and God took care of me and those kinds of things. Look at twenty-two, fifty-one. Uh, God, or he is a tower of deliverance to his king. Now, Hannah's poem had a king in it. Now, David's poem has a king in it. He's a tower of deliverance to his king, and he shows loving kindness to his... What does your text say? Anointed. Hannah's prayer had a king and an anointed anointed one. And now, at the end of the story, there's an anointed king as well. So, he's a tower of deliverance to his king, He shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So Hannah's poem looks forward to a king that God would strengthen and deliver. David's poem looks back and says, God delivered his king, strengthened his king. Uh, The question is, was David the king that the story of Samuel is really looking for? Is David the king that we're supposed to expect, or is it someone else? And thankfully, the story of Samuel will tell us. Okay, but uh, first I just want you to see the poems. One looks forward to a king that God will strengthen and one looks back to a king that God did strengthen. Okay, so in other words, obviously the theme of the book here is how God strengthens his anointed king because that's in both poems. All right, so if you look right in the very middle of the book, this would be 2 Samuel 7. This is what's called the Davidic covenant. It's the promise that God makes to David. This is the promise that God makes to David. And it really answers the question for us, is David the coming king that we should expect, or should we expect someone else? So the Lord says to Nathan, this is 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, uh, David David had wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord said, thanks, that's a great idea, but not you. Love you. Appreciate you. High five, but not you. Verse eight, the Lord says, now therefore go, say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, fo- uh, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Oh man, I mean, David kind of rules over his enemies and his name is going to be great in all the earth. Maybe David's our... Maybe David's our, like, expected king that we should be looking for in the story. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, is verse 10, and I'll plant them. that They might live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. In other words, they're going to have a secure kingdom, right? There will be peace in the kingdom. That sounds good. "Even Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I'll give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make... A house for you. Now, what kind of house is God going to make for David? Do you mean a 2,500 square foot split level on a quarter acre in the suburbs? Uh, That's not the kind of house that the Lord means. He means I'm going to make a dynasty for David. So, in other words, kings will come from the family of David. In verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, uh oh. David can't be our guy. Like the Lord tells him straight up, you're not our guy because <laughs> your days are going to end, right? You're going to lie down with your father. You're going to die. I will raise up your, de- your descendant after you. I'll raise up your, your son after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. So now we should be looking for one of the sons of David. That's who we should be looking for. And he will build a house for my name. Now, what kind of house is he going to build for the Lord? Is it going to be a 2,500-square-foot split level in the suburbs for the Lord? No, he means a temple. So one of David's sons will build the temple of the Lord. The Lord said no to David and said, one of your sons will build me a house. And I want, to, I want you to look at the, the last phrase of verse 13 there. If you're just clicking through in your Bible read-through, You may just miss this and read over it and it's fine, but this is actually an amazing statement if you read it and pause for a second. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What does your text say? Forever. Now we're kind of looking for a king that's gonna rule forever, right? That's from Judges. And the Lord says, David, it's gonna be one of your sons and I'll make sure his kingdom lasts forever. So now we got our guy. So the poem looked forward from Hannah. God's going to strengthen his anointed king. David's poem looks back. God strengthened his anointed king, but I'm not the guy. It's one of my sons, the Lord promises, who will rule on the throne forever. So, yeah. So verse 13 and then verse 14, I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. That's also a key phrase we're going to come back to when we hit the Psalms. Yeah, uh, if, he, if he or when he, could, you could translate it if he ca- commits iniquity. Um, so in other words, uh, David might have, might have sons that commit iniquity. And if they do, what's the Lord going to do? Well, I understand that, but, it, but it's like, I don't know, it's just thinking feels like the king of Jesus. And uh, you're skipping ahead in the story here. Yeah, so in other words, your sons may commit, if any of your sons commit iniquity, If they're sinful freaks, I'm going to take care of them, right? I'm going to judge them. But one of them is going to rule on the throne forever. If any of them, so if the next son doesn't commit iniquity, he's going to be our guy, right? So, uh, but if one of your sons commits iniquity, he's going to get it, okay? So now as we turn the pages through Samuel, we should be looking for which son of David is going to be the son that comes from the tribe of Judah? David's family comes from the tribe of Judah if you just trace the genealogies down. So which of the sons of David comes from the tribe of Judah? Which of David's sons will rule over all the earth forever uh, and bring righteousness to God's people? Uh, which of David's sons will be the, the one that we're looking for? So that's the, the argument of the author of Samuel. So when when David says God strengthened his anointed king and he's talking about his own life, uh, in the logic of the story, David's life serves as a picture for how God will deal with the king to come. God will strengthen that king, the eternal king, in the same way that he strengthened David. So David's life serves as a picture of the coming king, which is also important for the Psalms when we get there. All right? any questions about how Samuel works? So what Samuel adds to the picture here is now we're looking for a son of David to rule on the throne forever. So now we've narrowed it down family, uh, in family lines to David's family. Right on, man. That is preseason episode number eight. Thank you so much for checking it out. Appreciate it a ton. Uh, in the next episode coming up, we're going to look at the story of Solomon and how he fits into God's promise to David that one of his sons would rule on the throne forever and then we'll also take a look at 1st and 2nd Kings together as a whole and how they fit into the story of the Old Testament. Also if you want this whole class, if you want the 15 videos if you want the mp3 downloads and the 68 page PDF notes I'm going to leave a link in the description below where you can go and purchase that Also if you uh, want to connect with us if you have any comments or you want to ask any questions you can email me directly that's at jeff at corelifetraining.org Or you can hit up the Core Life Training Facebook page. You can like it and leave your question or your comment there. Also, if you want to keep up to speed on the latest with the podcast or upcoming classes and events that we're doing, you can join the email list at our website, corelifetraining.org. And then lastly, if you're into the podcast and you're digging it, would you help us out by doing a couple things? Number one, would you leave us a review on iTunes? Uh, The more and the better reviews that we get just makes it that much easier for people to find us there. And also please pass the word along, right? If you're if you're digging the podcast, if it's helping you, would you turn somebody else on to what we're doing as well? Alright, that is it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible and I will check you later.